Ladies and gentlemen, forgive me for interrupting your conversations. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I, have to, uh, I have to interrupt you again uh, to tell you that our speaker, uh, he's stuck in traffic. Our speaker's stuck in traffic and uh, um, yeah, I just made that up. Our speaker is, he's here. And uh, he's got to leave in 10 minutes, so we got to get this going. Before I tell you about Dr. Francis Collins, this is no joke. There's a second black purse, okay, an unclaimed black purse. I have not yet gone through it. John Hackney, does this belong to you? I know. You're, uh, you, could, you could pull this off. Uh, if anybody would like to claim this... Uh, it just says something about Sag Harbor, but nobody's claiming this. Honey, would you, you like it? I'm amazed that I'm holding up a, a lost black purse and nobody is claiming this. This doesn't make a lot of sense. Although, it's unlimited, it was unlimited wine, so anything's possible. There's a woman in the building sleeping. Um, anyway, if you bump into anyone who lost a black purse, Point them to the podium, but wait till Dr. Collins is done. It would be embarrassing uh, to claim it at that time. All right, we are going to uh, hear from Dr. Collins now. That's, uh, I'm assuming most of you are done with your entrees. Um, you can continue uh, eating, but, but they, uh, they should be clearing the entrees right now. We're going to hear from Dr. Collins, and then we will have... Q&A and dessert. Everybody clear on that? Excellent. Excellent. You're doing a wonderful job. Okay. Um, now, Dr. Collins has a lot to say, and I do not want to uh, cut into his uh, time. Um, on the other hand, uh, if I do cut into his time, like, what's he going to do, right? Uh, you know, with his, even with all his degrees and awards and everything, there's really nothing that he can do, all right? That's what an education's worth in this culture, nothing. Um, now listen, there are some Socrates in the City speakers that need no introduction. Very, very few, but there are some that need no introduction, and I would uh, I'd put it to you that Dr. Collins is one of those Socrates in the City speakers. He really does not need uh, much of an introduction. Uh, but for those of you who don't read the papers, um, let me just say uh, that for his role in leading the Human Genome Project, genome, G-E-N-O-M-E, -E, not gnome. Some of my friends, they said, oh, that's pseudoscience. And I said, not gnome, it's genome. That's the kind of people that I hang out with. Yeah, yes, Leslie, that's right. It's sad. But anyway, genome, okay? Genome. Just, just follow. By the end of the evening, this will all come together. Genome Project. So for his role in leading the Human Genome Project, you say genome, genome? Genome. Genome. Evidently, it's genome. You know, and he, he would know, I guess. Um, um, for his role in leading the Human Genome Project, uh, he has been feted at the White House by two presidents, not simultaneously, uh, by two presidents, Clinton and Bush. 
Uh, he has also gotten, I'm, I'm referring to Dr. Collins, uh, he's also gotten the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Let's be honest, who hasn't gotten one of those? But still, in this case, it was very splashy. It was in the papers and, you know, whatever. He wanted me to say that. So it's a big deal. It's important to him, all right? And you got to, uh, I'm not trying to, trying to put it down. Not everybody's gotten one, but so many people have at this point that it's just, it's cheapened the value of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But for... For Dr. Collins, evidently, it was a special experience, and he got to meet the president. And So, all right. Uh, he's also appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and there's probably not 30 of us that have appeared on the cover of Time. So that's, that's pretty special, right? We know who we are. But cover of Time magazine, very important. In 2003... Uh, he, his was the biography of the year on the A&E Network. It was voted the number one biography of the year, and he beat out Valerie Bertinelli by one vote. Is that amazing? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. One vote. Incredible. Uh, I think she was in the middle of, of divorcing. Uh, you know, it was like a big year for her, but... He beat her out. This is the man. You said, who could do that? In that year, the year everybody's talking Bertinelli, Bertinelli, he, he beat her out by one vote. Oh, my gosh. Um, of course, uh, Dr. Collins has also been on uh, Charlie Rose. And who hasn't been on Charlie Rose? But again, it was a particularly wonderful performance there. And he's been on the Colbert Rapport. Yes. Wow. Into the lion's den. How sad that they applaud that and not Charlie Rose. You see? That's why we do Socrates in the city. We've got to educate him, Collins. Um, no, it's uh, it really, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Collins has just left the head of the National Center for Human Genome Research, just stepped down recently, but continues to be a very, very big shot in the highest government circles. No kidding. This is true. Yesterday, I got an email uh, from Dr. Collins saying that at 5.30 today he needed a, a private room. Can I say this or will I get like taken out by snipers or something? What are they going to do? Um, he said he needed a private room at 5.30 in the club. Could he have a private room? Because he has to have a special conversation, you know, with the Obama transition team, right? Now, a lot of us are, are on those calls every day, again, but the idea that it was just... Actually, we thought it was, it was a joke. It took me a second to say, well, no, you know what? As I read the email again and again, doesn't seem to be any sense of irony or anything. This is, I think this is real, Justin. Where's Justin? I'm not making this up, right? And uh, so anyway, at 5.30, he, we had to take him to a special room so he could have his, his special phone call with the Obama transition team. It's eight guys. That's the team. And he had a, a call with them. And, you know, I... I saw him in there, you know, talking on the phone and whatever. And I got to say, this is where it gets kind of sad because we want everybody wants to cling to power, you know. And I, I, I realize I happen to know his cell phone is broken; it's not working. <laughs> and that, and to go through this exercise to convince just a handful of us who already are impressed with Dr. Collins that he's still that he's still important, even though he stepped down. That he's still, you know, he's still... I said, wow, that's just a, that's just a picture of, 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 you know, hey, who, who isn't like that? I'm like that, okay? We're no, we're no different, okay? I lie all the time, and I do that kind of stuff because I just want people to think 
you know, that I got the juice, that I got the mojo. And, and I thought, but if, if Dr. Collins could behave like that, it must be okay, right? So I just want to say he's a human being. He's no different than the rest of us, okay? But uh, it was quite an acting job. He was pacing and stuff, and I said that the phone's dead. It's sad. It's sad. Yeah. All right. Well, it's just a... I just want... I, I know it's, it's probably okay that I shared that, right? Um, anyway. Well, look... Obviously, I love this guy, otherwise I wouldn't uh, rake him over the coals like this. Uh, the way that I came to hear Dr. Collins talk about what he's going to talk tonight was at Socrates in the City in San Francisco. There's only one other legitimate Socrates in the City franchise run by Scott Sherman in San Francisco. Uh, it was about a year ago. We have branched out to San Francisco. That night I heard him speak, and I said, we absolutely must figure out a way to bring Dr. Collins to New York. And granted, we Manhattanites, we might not be as sophisticated as the people who live in San Francisco. But that's not going to stop us from having sophisticated speakers. And so, ladies and gentlemen, tonight, I'm very, very pleased to give you Dr. Francis Collins. Well, in the two minutes I have left, <laughs> Eric, are you speaking anywhere in the next few months that I could introduce you? Just let me know. I, I've already made a few notes. I, I, think, I think that would be a lot of fun for me, if not for you. Uh, that was, what do I say? Memorable. That's what it was. It was memorable. <laughs> And it is a great pleasure to be here with most of you this evening. <laughs> in, this, in this really remarkable venue. And Eric, I'm, I'm not insulted. You insulted your wife much more than me, so I'm, I'm not worried at all. Uh, no, no, all in good fun. And uh, what an amazing gathering this is here at the University Club in New York City. And what a privilege it is for me to have a chance uh, to speak to you this evening about a topic that I think is much on people's minds, uh, especially these days when there are a lot of shrill voices out there uh, talking about whether faith has become irrelevant. And this is this question of science and faith, science and God and all that. Now, I'm going to show some images up there on that screen. And I know that there is an economic downturn, but I don't know that the chiropractors should have a particularly good time tomorrow. So if you all would like to move your chairs a little bit to avoid some unfortunate damage uh, to the vertebrae in your neck, then please feel free to do so in order to get a better look at what's up there. And I will uh, hope not to dwell too much upon those in case your view of them is not precise as those people in the back of the room may otherwise be somewhat disadvantaged. So. Yeah, we're going to talk about science, because I'm a scientist and a physician, and uh, I'm also going to talk about faith, because I'm a believer. And that surprises people, uh, because they assume that those two categories don't get along very well right now. And in fact, uh, looking at some of the things that are out there on the airwaves or on the bookshelves, you might think there was a bit of a battle going on. Well, I don't think that battle is necessary. In fact, I don't think that battle is in fact as uh, difficult as it's being portrayed. But let me try to explain to you why I say that. And let's be clear here, we are following the Socratic model, 
which is to follow the argument wherever it leads uh, to see what are the facts that might help us with this question about whether the scientific and the spiritual worldviews are in fact incompatible or whether they can be harmonized. Well, let me start with genetics. And of course, if you've been passing by newsstands, it's been pretty hard to get away from this stuff. Uh, it's been all over the place. Uh, Time Magazine talking about genetics, the future is now. Newsweek uh, talking about the genome. Can we all say that together now? Genome. <laughs> it's not genome, genome. And it's certainly not just gnome, as you heard. This is the genome. This is our instruction book. This is marvelous stuff. Uh, here's another cover of Time Magazine, uh, Solving the Mysteries of DNA. This one published at the time of the 50th anniversary of the discovery of DNA, which happened to be also a seminal moment for the understanding of our instruction book because this happened at the same time that we had finished reading out all of the letters of that code, as I'll describe in a moment. Notice here Adam and Eve appear on Time Magazine's cover as well. You might notice that all three of those covers ha have two things in common. One is DNA. The other is naked people. <laughs> now, what about that? I think that means that editors of magazines have figured out that DNA does not sell. <laughs> and apparently, uh, surprise, surprise, they know what does. <clears throat> so what is this anyway? Uh, well, DNA really is, uh, it's a pretty good metaphor. It's an instruction book. It is a, the way in which all of those instructions that you need in order to go from being a single cell, which you all once were, uh, to a pretty fancy organism, uh, could come to pass. You have to have the instructions to make that possible. And it's a pretty elaborate instruction book, but it's written in this rather strange, but ultimately on the surface of it, rather simple language that just has four letters in its alphabet. And it's, uh, it is the genome. All of the DNA of an organism is its genome. And it is, in fact, encoded within this double helix called DNA that Watson and Crick figured out the structure of back in 1953, when I was three years old. And basically, the way it carries information is by the series of chemical bases, which are abbreviated A, C, G, and T. And it's the order of those letters, those bases, that carries out the information that then gets passed from parent to child down through the generations. Now, if you had to guess, assuming you didn't know the answer, how many of those letters of the instruction book does it take to specify the biological properties of a human being, what number would you guess? It can't be infinite. You have to have this inside each cell of your body. Every time the cell divides, it's got to copy the whole thing. Uh, so you wouldn't want it to be larger than it had to be, at least not by much. Well, the answer is about three billion. Even today, three billion is a big number. <laughs> Even in Washington, it's a big number, although. Some might debate that. But it's hard to think about that number and to think of the fact you have that inside each cell of your body. If we, if we decided right now, because this is a special evening and this is Socrates in the city, we should read the human genome. What do you think? Sure, we can do that. I'll, I'll start over here. And, and you can start reading A, C, G, T, T, G, C, T, and so on. And when you get tired, you can pass it to the next person. And we'll just keep going until we're done. You wouldn't mind that, right? That would be memorable. Well, you might not survive because seven days a week, 24 hours a day, we could be at that for 31 years. And then we'd finally be done. And you have that information inside each cell of your body, which is just a phenomenal thing to contemplate. And you got that from your parents. 
And the genome is, in fact, the thing that you could think of as the most fundamental part of trying to understand human biology, understand the instruction book. And the exciting thing to tell you is that we have now, in fact, through a focused effort involving uh, some 20 laboratories in six countries over the course of several years, a project that I had the privilege of leading, we have read out all of those letters. And we have gone from the double helix in April 1953 to having the complete DNA sequence of Homo sapiens in April 2003. And the team of 2,500 scientists that I had the privilege of working with made the decision all the way along that this was such fundamental information, such basic pre-competitive information that it ought to be made available to everyone. And so it was placed on the internet every 24 hours. And that information has empowered then this newest generation of biologists and geneticists to begin to figure out what it all means. But that's a hard problem because we are just beginning readers even now trying to read this instruction book. It is very hard to sort it out. But we've made some real progress. Now a major area of focus right now uh, for those of us who are interested in the medical applications of human genetics, which is most of us, that's why we got into this, is to try to understand those uh, slightly scary looking ticking time bombs that are lurking within the DNA that place each of us at risk for something. If you came here tonight thinking you were the perfect genetic specimen, and there's some good candidates in the room on a superficial level, I'm sorry, even Eric Metaxas, even Eric Metaxas does not have a perfect genome. I'm sorry. I know that's, that's a shock. I'm sorry. It, it came from your father, I'm sure. <laughs> so we'd like to understand these to the extent that we could use that information to try to understand how each of us may be at risk for some future illness that we could prevent if we knew what was lurking there. You know, we practice prevention now not very effectively, kind of in a one-size-fits-all approach. But we're not one-size-fits-all. We're all individuals, and we all have a different collection of these genetic risk factors. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to apply that in an evidence-based method, uh, to be able to focus what you need to do for your particular risks instead of just trying to do what everybody else is doing in a generic way? Well, we're coming along with that. So I will tell you that until a couple of years ago, while we had been very successful in finding genetic factors in highly heritable conditions, diseases like cystic fibrosis, we had been really quite stymied trying to discover those for things like diabetes or the common cancers or heart disease, the things that fill up our hospitals and clinics and afflict so many of us and our families. All that has changed. I'm going to show you a diagram here that I think will make this point. What you're looking at there in a slightly washed out view is a cartoon of the human chromosomes. DNA is not arranged in one long strand. It's in these separable chromosomes that you can actually see under the microscope. And each chromosome has hundreds of genes on it, a gene being a packet of information that codes for a particular instruction. In 2005, for the first time, we had sufficient power to be able to scan the whole genome and say, where is the ticking time bomb or bombs for a particular disease? And the first success right there on chromosome one over there, which you can't quite read, was for a disease called age-related macular degeneration. Common cause of blindness in the elderly. I'm sure there are people in this room who have family members with that problem. Uh, that had been a complete mystery. Didn't seem like it was likely to be very heritable. It doesn't come along until you're 70 or 80 years old, but what do you know? 
a discovery here of a gene that nobody would have guessed had anything to do with this disease, and there it was, and it's already pointed us to some very exciting new ideas about prevention and treatment. So we began to think, this is going to work. Well, that was 2005. We had one success. 2006, we had three more. But now look and see what happens without paying any attention to the details. Just look at the banners that are appearing here. 2007, I'm breaking it down by quarters because otherwise it would be too much at one time. First quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. Each one of those, a gene for diabetes or heart disease or asthma or Crohn's disease or the common cancers. You can go down the list of common diseases and they're yielding up their secrets. 2008, the first quarter, the second quarter, and this is as of October 1st, and pretty soon. Pretty soon I'm going to have to remake the slide because we're not done yet. So these are happening uh, day by day. No issue of the most prominent journals, uh, Nature, Science, and Cell, comes out without a few more of these popping up. Uh, by the hard work of people who are taking the tools from the Human Genome Project and shining a bright light into areas that were previously very much obscured and telling us things about the causes and the prevention and ultimately the cure of disease that we desperately needed to know and now we finally can have the power uh, to see what's there. And this is very exciting because it promises the opportunity to really revolutionize medicine. What we need to do is to move from the top of this diagram to the bottom. I haven't put a label on that time axis because it's going to travel at a different pace for different diseases. But what I've just shown you is already happening in enormous proliferation of information, these discovery of genetic risk factors for common diseases. Now, in some instances, such as, for instance, certain types of cancer where knowing that you're at risk and getting appropriate surveillance allows the detection of a cancer before it is already spread, that can be incredibly empowering and powerful to save lives. And that's already happening. Colon cancer, breast cancer in that category. In other instances, we're learning how to practice better pharmacology and something called pharmacogenomics. The idea here being that our individual reactions to drugs that we may be given for a particular illness are not all the same. Some people may get a good response. Some people may get a toxic effect. Uh, some people may get no response at all. What's that all about? A lot of that is differences in our DNA. And if we knew about that well enough to make a prediction, we could choose the right drug at the right time, at the right dose for the right person, instead of just doing the one-size-fits-all approach, which doesn't always work as well as we want it to. And ultimately, these discoveries, like that gene for macular degeneration I mentioned, point us to new ideas about treatment, therapeutics, that we never would have guessed at otherwise. And in my view, that may be the biggest payoff at all, of all, but it actually is also the one that takes the longest time because you have to go from that early light bulb experience to developing an idea about how to develop a drug and then going through animal testing and ultimately clinical trials. And that is a long, slow, and expensive process. And we as a nation need to be prepared that this is not going to happen overnight, but that we have the best chance we've ever had uh, to make huge differences in the diseases that are so much a problem uh, for us and for our families. So I have reason, I think, here to come before you being pretty excited about all of this because uh, I do think that we have crossed a bridge into new territory where we have the chance in a much more fundamental and comprehensive way to understand how life works and how sometimes it doesn't quite work because of one of these glitches and what we might do about it. And that is truly an exciting thing to say. But let me come to the second part of what I want to tell you about, and that is maybe introduced by these two images. 
On the left, you see a beautiful stained glass window. This happens to be the rose window of Westminster Cathedral. On the right, you see maybe an unfamiliar view of DNA, but that's DNA. You're looking instead of from the side, you're looking down the long axis. So you can see the radial pattern that all those base pairs and the uh, double helix make for you when you're looking at it from that perspective. So I ask you to look at those two images and contemplate whether, in fact, in terms of deciding on your own worldview, is it necessary to make a choice between those two? Or is it, in fact, possible for a thoughtful, mature individual to find a way to embrace both of those and to find them complementary? If you'd asked me that question when I was 25, I would have said, no way. At that time, I was a graduate student studying physical chemistry. I thought that all that mattered could be described in the laws of physics and chemistry and mathematics. And I had no use for anything of the spiritual sort. I had not been raised in a family where faith was considered particularly important. And I had grown further and further away from any consideration of the faith aspect of life. Then I changed my path and decided to go to medical school because I became aware there were exciting things happening in human biology and I wanted to be part of that. But I discovered that studying medicine was not just about equations. It was also about people, uh, people who were facing severe challenges, some of them facing death. And I was surprised to discover that some of them seemed to be at peace about that, resting upon their faith in confidence that what they were facing was not so terrible after all. And I looked at myself and I realized I would not feel that way. I would be terrified. I would be angry. I would be anything but at peace. And one day one of my patients, after telling me about her faith, which I felt sort of uncomfortable hearing about, uh, turned to me and said in a very simple way, Doctor, what do you believe? And I realized that my atheism had never really been based upon much in the way of real consideration of the evidence. And that was not a good thing for a scientist to realize. And so over the course of a couple of years, I embarked upon an effort to try to understand what do believers believe and why do they believe it? And is it something that somebody like me, who imagined myself completely driven by reason, uh, could in fact embrace as well? And over those two years, I realized that I'd missed out on a profoundly compelling series of arguments that indicate that atheism is in fact the least rational of all choices and that belief in God is in fact supported not only by spiritual and theological arguments but even by some pointers from nature. Now that was a surprise. I realized that naturalism, my worldview, had limits. Yeah, science was a natural a reliable way to understand how the natural world works, but science provides no answers to some very powerful, important questions, such as, why am I here? What does love mean? I'm not talking about eros here. I'm talking about love between friends. Love that you feel for people you've never met because they are people whose concerns are your concerns. What happens after I die? And is there a God, the big one? Is it not immediately apparent that science can't help you with those questions? So if you're going to be an atheist, you have to basically decide those are irrelevant or find some other kind of approach to them that involves a non-naturalistic uh, series of approaches. Well, also, as I said, I began to realize that there, there, there were pointers uh, to the existence of something outside of nature from nature itself. 
Uh, this is perhaps a trivial, but it's not trivial at all when you think about it, statement. There is something instead of nothing. <laughs> There's no reason that should be. There is the Big Bang, the fact that the universe had a beginning about 13.7 billion years ago in an unimaginable flash where the universe at that time, smaller than a golf ball, exploded and has been blowing itself apart ever since as the galaxies receded from each other and continue to do so today. Our laws of physics and mathematics can't really deal with what happened before that. They break down. So doesn't that cry out for an explanation? Have we observed nature to create itself? I don't think so. That seems almost by definition to imply a creator who must be outside of nature and frankly must be outside of time as well as space. Otherwise you have not solved the problem of who created the creator. As soon as you admit the idea the creator has to be outside of time, then that so-called infinite regress problem goes away. Wigner's phrase, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Uh, after all, I was a student of physical chemistry. I used those equations with the full confidence that they describe the behavior of matter and energy. It never occurred to me wonder why they would work. Why should they? Why should the universe, why should gravity follow an inverse square law? There's no reason that should be the case, but it does. It begins to make you think that creator who's outside of time and space is also a pretty darn good mathematician and a pretty good physicist because there is this amazing observation really only coming to light in the last 30 years that the constants that determine the way in which matter and energy behave, things like the gravitational constant, have been precisely tuned to take on values that are necessary in order for any meaningful complexity to exist in the universe, much less life. If you take the gravitational constant and you allow it to be just slightly weaker than it currently is, then after the Big Bang, everything flies apart and there's never any coalescence of galaxies, stars, planets. If it's a little too strong, just by a tiny bit, one part in a billion, uh, then in fact things do come together, but a little too soon. And the Big Bang is followed by a big crunch before we ever show up. And that's one of 15, 15 physical constants, which if you tweak their values by a tiny fraction, I mean a very tiny fraction, the whole thing doesn't work anymore. Faced with that evidence, I think one is either forced to say there must be a multitude of parallel universes with different values of these constants, which we can never observe, or this was intentional. Now, which of those requires more faith? I had a trouble imagining this multiverse hypothesis uh, was something I could embrace, and yet it seemed more compelling to imagine that this was not an accident. And then especially when it came to looking at ourselves, asking, okay, if there is a God, does God care about me, or is God one of those deist kind of concepts that started the universe going and lost interest shortly thereafter? I read C.S. Lewis, his book, Mere Christianity. That first chapter of C.S. Lewis has an amazing title. It's called Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, that would be the first book I think anybody should look at who's interested in some of these arguments. It changed my life. And the argument he's making in that is a familiar one down through the centuries, but it was unfamiliar to me. And that is, if you were looking for evidence in yourself of the existence of a creator who cared about human beings, and you looked around, and what you found was this inexplicable part of human nature, which is this knowledge of right and wrong, 
a constant across cultures and down through history, although we interpret it differently. We don't disagree that it's there. And a desire to do the right thing, even though we often don't, and then we make excuses, which only proves that we're under the law after all, or we wouldn't feel the need to make those excuses. Wouldn't that be an interesting place to find, written in our own hearts, evidence of a creator God who cares about human beings and who must be good and holy and is calling us to do the same? I was compelled by that argument at age 26. I'm compelled by it today. Now, you may say, this is all about evolution, <clears throat> that in fact human beings have been forced by natural selection to be nice to each other because that helps us all survive. And you'd be right in certain instances, such as if you're being nice to your own family because they share your DNA, or you're being nice to people who might be nice to you next week, so you're going to have some reciprocal benefit. But what do you do about those most radical acts of altruism where somebody reaches out to someone they've never met, not even of their own group, and does something that potentially puts their own life at risk. We're in New York. A little more than a year ago, Wesley Autry, uh, an uh, African-American a construction worker, watched as a young man standing next to him on the subway platform went into an epileptic seizure and fell into the tracks in front of the oncoming number one train. Uh, Wes, the young man was white. Uh, Wesley was black. Wesley standing there with these two little girls, asked a passerby to hold their hands and leapt onto the tracks, realizing as he did so that there wasn't time uh, to pull the young man to safety. And so he covered that young man with his own body, wedging them between the tracks as the train rolled over them. Miraculously, with only uh, a tiny fraction of an inch clearance, they both survived. And here's a photograph from the next day as Wesley, standing next to the young man's father, tells this story. Now, are you not inspired by that? Is that not an example of what we consider human nobility ought to be? Of course, it often isn't, but we all look at that and we go, yeah, that's what, that's what we should do in, when called into action. When we see an Oscar Schindler giving his own potential life uh, a serious chance of ending by saving Jews from the Holocaust, we admire that. We think that's what we're called to do. When we see a Mother Teresa giving of herself to the dead and dying in Calcutta. When we see Jesus talking about the Good Samaritan, reaching out uh, to one uh, who others had passed by, and reaching out to one not of his own tribe, we feel that was a lesson. And we resonate with that lesson, don't we? Well, that's a scandal to evolutionary mechanisms. But it is an absolutely compelling pointer towards something within us that seems to be calling us to be better than we would be in our own natural state and therefore may be in fact a connection to a creator God who cares about us as individuals not just as a process of his creation of no particular subsequent interest. All I've said to you here is what many have said better. Immanuel Kant, uh, the wonderful philosopher wrote this sentence, which is just what I've said. Two things fill me with constantly increasing admiration and awe. The longer and more earnestly I reflect on them, the starry heavens without, Psalm 19, and the moral law within. Okay, I'm there. Okay, you may say, that all sounds fine. And I became a believer at age 27 and a follower of Christ. You're a believer and a geneticist. Isn't there a problem here? Doesn't your head explode? After all, you're the guy who studies DNA, 
Don't you realize that DNA teaches us something about our relationship to other animals that is absolutely impossible for a Christian believer to accept? Isn't evolution incompatible with faith? Well, many have asked that question. I will tell you right now, I have never seen a problem here, but many have. And I thought for fun, I would show you an example of someone who posed that question uh, in front of several million viewers, uh, somewhat uh, to a white-knuckled experience uh, for me. So can you guess who that might be? Uh, there we go. Let's see how this goes. My guest tonight is a DNA expert and the author of The Language of God. Sorry, doctor. God doesn't speak DNA. He speaks English. Please welcome Dr. Francis Collins. Doctor, thanks for coming on. A pleasure to be here. You ready to take the heat, man? I'm ready. Hit I'm gonna me. I'm going to pop you in the Colbert autoclave and sterilize your ideas. Ooh. All right, look it up. Now, um, you got a book here. I'm going to get right to it, okay? Let's move some paper. It's called The Language of God, all right? A scientist presents evidence for belief. Wait. Science and belief. You're a scientist, you believe in that science stuff, and you're a Christian. Correct. Okay? Absolutely correct. Are you going to be the only Christian in hell? Because <laughs> you believe in evolution, all that stuff, right? Like me, monkey man. Well, you know, actually some 40% of working scientists are also believers in a personal God who answers prayer. Sounds a bit like your God, too. So I guess I'll have company if we're all down there. But you know what? I don't think we will be. Where do you think we got the ability to do science? Oh, uh, you misused God's gifts. <laughs> <laughs> you questioned God rather than being obedient to his word. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. 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 Okay. This, this is an ability to see God's creation in all of its awesome glory. Mm -hmm. For us to be able to appreciate that is right. a way to worship him, is it not? Right. And I don't know why no, you're so upset. No, it is upset. not. Well, I mean, if you want my opinion, if you're asking me to render judgment here, and I judge not, lest I be judged. Yes, I can don't see that. Don't me, man. Um, uh, uh, I don't think that we need to question what happens in the world. We just live our lives, you know. I mean, I wish we were all still shepherds. Um, now, well, you know, why, why do you think that we can, we can, God's, the beauty of the world and God's creation can be revealed through science? Like, well, show me what, what, what is this thing? Is it a merry-go-round? Well, it, it will rotate, but it's not exactly a merry-go-round. So mm -hmm. this is DNA. This is the stuff of life. This is the information molecule of all living organisms. And this is, in my view, also mm -hmm. the way that God spoke life into being. As a believer who's also somebody who studies this stuff, okay, it what, seems to me there's something pretty profound here. All right, I'll, I'll bite, all right? What, what, uh, what day did you do this on? Because you believe, you, believe, you believe that God created the world in seven days. Everything in seven days, six days, and seven days rested. Or, or are there parts of the Bible you don't accept? Um, I think there are parts of the Bible that maybe weren't intended to be absolutely literally interpreted. I mean, mm -hmm. those, those seven like days... Like maybe God loves and forgives everyone like you? 
Okay. I want that part to be true. I, well, we all want that part to be but, true. But you, throw, seven... you throw out any part of the Bible, sir, throw out all of it. Well, okay? how, long, how long were those days, those first three, before there was a sun? You see this watch? You see the little hand? Mm -hmm. It goes around twice. That's a day. <laughs> You're supposed to be one of these smarty acts, and you don't... That's a day. So, so, Stephen, I think you need to understand something about evolution, which seems to be such an enemy to you. Evolution is your friend. You don't have to be dismayed about we evolution. We all have imaginary friends, but we grow out of it. But evolution is really God's plan for giving upgrades. You're a, you're, you're a fruit fly. It doesn't work so well. You need to do more than that. You're, you're a mammal, but you still have that thumb that isn't in the right place. Upgrade. You need a bigger brain in order to be able to have your intelligence. Are you talking Upgrade. about, are you talking you about reincarnation? Are you talking Upgrade. about reincarnation now? No, 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 no. No, no. The, this so is evolution. We're, we're still in evolution. But that doesn't evolution imply that God makes mistakes? Like, weren't the dinosaurs a big oops-a-daisy? Uh, they were pretty cool while they were around. Yeah, but God said enough of that. That implies someday we could be extinct, and I don't buy that. Well, they needed to get the dinosaurs out of the way so you'd have your chance, you know. If they hadn't gone extinct, I don't think us mammals would have had a niche to sort of land in. So I don't think you ought to be too unhappy about that particular outcome. Now, uh, you, you are the head of the Human Genome Project, correct? That's correct. Okay. So can we, uh, let's get into the science here for a second. Let's do that. Do you, are we going to be able to patent genes? Am I going to be able to say, I own my genes because I know people are going to want to copy me. Well, people... <laughs> and I can see why that would be. But I already is... sell a lot of Formula 401, and I want to make sure that I'm not going to get cloned. Mm. Well, I think you're okay on this, because any genes that haven't already been patented can't be because we put all of the DNA sequence in the public domain, and now it's called prior art, and nobody can claim it. That was one of the goals of the Human Genome Project, is to stop all this patenting of fundamental information about our own genome. Now, you, seem to be a good in the thing. Genome Project, you read the entire, uh, uh, the, the entire DNA of, the, of human beings, All correct? three billion of the letters that you see there. In fact, I brought you along here. That's a DVD that has all three billion of those letters. You can take it home and start okay. reading through them. Right. A C G T G G T C C. Did you um? Did Did you read all three billion, or did you skip over some of them, like the uh, like the whale chapter in Moby Dick? <laughs> is, 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 is there is there a uh, is there a cliff notes for this? You know, you that's a really good question. There were Thank people you. who proposed the idea of skipping over the stuff that they thought was junk, but you know, I don't think we're smart enough to know what was junk. And I bet you'd agree with that, so, since it's God's language. Do you, do you believe in cloning? Cloning as defined by human, reproductive cloning, yeah, making a copy somebody, of some, bit of somebody and making another that person. No, I think that's a very bad thing to that's do. That's too bad, because I was hoping the one good thing that could come out of this human genome project was you, as a Christian, go to Turin, get some of Jesus off the shroud, and make another. You know, somebody tried to get a little bit of that cloth and see if they could get DNA out of it and ask the question, what's the DNA of God? But you know what? The shroud turned out to be a little too recent. Mm -hmm. it for, was for, for those of little faith. Well, for me, it's still very old. <laughs> Doctor, thank you for stopping by. Dr. Francis Collins and the human genome. We'll be right back. So I know that's filmed about two blocks from here, and I think that was the whitest my knuckles have ever been. <laughs>
So, okay, Stephen, what's the problem here? What really is the evidence for the theory of evolution? Let me just spend a couple minutes on this because it's such a stumbling block for so many people, and yet I think it need not be so. So do we, in fact, now almost 150 years after the publication of The Origin of Species, Darwin's book came out in 1859, so next year is going to be a big Darwin year, do we have evidence for this notion of descent from a common ancestor affected by random changes acted upon by natural selection to result in significant events over long periods of time. Well, let's even ask it harder. Does it affect humans? Because this is clearly a place uh, where many people uh, begin to have some difficulty. And let's be honest, Darwin's theory is very counterintuitive. It is not the sort of thing that you would have come up with uh, just looking around you. But what's the evidence? Well. Let's first compare genomes. We've done our own genome. Well, guess what? We've done a bunch of others. The mouse, uh, the chimpanzee, the dog, the honeybee, good heavens, the sea urchin, the macaque, even the platypus has had its genome completed, and about 30 others as well. So what happens if you take those DNA sequences and you put them into a computer and you ask the computer to tell you what happened here? The computer draws a tree a tree that looks like an evolutionary tree, right down to the details of how various animals are placed onto that diagram, including humans up there at the top, and matches quite precisely to what had already been inferred by anatomy and by the fossil record. That doesn't mean it's right, but it's certainly interesting and, and fairly compelling that it comes down with the same answer. But you could also say, and certainly I've had people who are troubled by this say, uh, well, you know, God, in the process of creating all of those different species, used the same motifs over and over again. So it wouldn't be surprising that their DNA sequences would be similar just on that basis. That does not prove common descent. But there are other issues when you start looking at the details that make that position very difficult to sustain. Human chromosome 2 is an interesting one. I showed you chromosomes a little bit ago. Here they are ordered in a slightly different way, 1 through 22, and then there's the X and the Y. And down underneath it are the chromosomes from a chimpanzee. And they look a lot alike, except there's one difference. We humans have a big chromosome two, the next the largest ones, and chimps don't have that. They have two smaller ones. Now, when you look at those chimpanzee chromosomes, and by the way, the gorilla looks like the chimp. We're the outlier here. You can imagine that maybe those two chimpanzee chromosomes somewhere way back when, or more specifically, the ancestor of the chimpanzee, who also looked like this, there was a fusion of those chromosomes in the line that led to us. And that would be an interesting hypothesis. Well, now that we have the complete DNA sequence, we can test that. And we can test it in a specific way. Because it turns out that at the tips of all human and chimp and every other mammal chromosomes are specific sequences called telomeres that don't happen anywhere else. Well, guess what? In the human, they do happen one other place. They happen in the middle of chromosome two. These colored circles that you see there including that one that's in the middle of a chromosome where it doesn't belong, are basically the DNA signatures of the ends of chromosomes. And our chromosome 2, in exactly the place you would have predicted, based on that hypothesis of an ancestral fusion, you find the DNA fossil showing that that's exactly what has happened. Now, unless you're going to postulate that God placed that sequence there to test our faith, then you're in a tough spot uh, to say that we humans are not part of this amazing tapestry of life. Let me give you another example. Why did those sailors get scurvy? What is the deal about us and vitamin C? Why do we need this? Because many other mammals don't. Well, I can tell you why. 
Here's a stretch of genes on the human, the cow, and the mouse that happen to be in the same order, three of them. This is taken from somewhere in the middle of the genome. I'm not going to bother you about what these names mean. But interestingly, they're all lined up in a similar space, with one exception, which I will now show you, that in the human, that gene in the middle, called GULO, which stands for galunolactone oxidase, but don't worry about that, actually has a huge deletion in the middle of it that renders it completely non-functional. And that is the gene that you need to make the enzyme that synthesizes ascorbic acid, vitamin C. And that's why the sailors got scurvy, because they, like all of us, have a non-functional G-U-L-O gene. But isn't it interesting that there's a remnant of it there? You can see it. It's lost most of its original abilities to do anything, but you can still find this DNA signature left over uh, from that deletion event. And it's in exactly the place in between these two other genes that common descent would predict. It's very hard to look at that and not conclude that we are in fact part of this process. And I could give you many other examples as well. So I think it's fair to say, and this is largely data now coming from the study of DNA and not so much from the fossil record, that Darwin was right, that common ancestry was correct, that gradual change over time being operated on by natural selection has resulted in an amazing diversity of individual species and also in Homo sapiens. Well, if evolution is true, does that leave any room for God? There's certainly many people who would argue you have to make a choice here and you have to resist evolution if you're a believer because it basically forces you into an atheistic perspective. That, my friends, is really not the truth. And let me explain how that, I think, is a misunderstanding even by those who are very much experts in this field. You may have seen this book by Richard Dawkins, a distinguished expositor of evolutionary theory an incredibly gifted writer who has written about evolution going back to the 1970s with his famous book, The Selfish Gene, and explained things uh, like the non-intuitive aspects of this in ways that I think compelled many people to understand finally what Darwin was talking about. But Dawkins has arrived in a different place now later in his career and is putting most of his effort into taking the evolutionary naturalistic perspective and arguing that that requires atheism and his book, The God Delusion, one of those rare books that requires no subtitle, uh, is his manifesto of that sort. But don't you see immediately the problem here? Dawkins is trying to argue the non-existence of God based on scientific grounds. If God has any meaning, unless you're a pantheist, then God is at least in part outside of nature. Science has no ability to comment about things that are outside of nature. It's a category error to try to do so. And so to use scientific arguments to say yes or no to the existence of God is not a productive pathway, and yet it is the main thesis of this book. And perhaps Chesterton said it well in terms of atheism and its problems, the most daring of all dogmas, the assertion of a universal negative, requiring a supreme degree of confidence to say, I know there is no God. Suppose the knowledge of God's existence just happens to be outside of what you know at the moment. I debated Dawkins on this topic a couple of years ago. You can still find this up on the internet if you want to read the arguments that went back and forth. And ultimately Dawkins did at the end of the interview say, well, you know, I can't rule out the possibility that there might be something grand, incomprehensibly complex that our human minds could not possibly get their minds about uh, that might be outside of nature. Well, okay, he got it. <laughs> A convert right there, but 
he's not subsequently repeated that statement on a regular basis. But I think Dawkins' problem, frankly, is that his view of faith is such a narrow one that he really has not taken the time to understand uh, what mature believers believe. And so he caricatures it and then finds it easy uh, to dissemble. Well, okay, you may be wondering, uh, if I'm so confident there's not a problem here, how in fact can evolution and faith be reconciled? So let me conclude with what I see as a totally comfortable synthesis. It is a synthesis which I think that 40% of scientists who are believers have largely arrived at, many of them thinking they were the first ones to think of it. But actually, it's a fairly obvious pathway to put this all together. And here it is. Almighty God, who is not limited in space or time, created our universe 13.7 billion years ago with those parameters precisely tuned to allow the development of complexity, not by accident, by intention, over long periods of time. God's plan included the mechanism of evolution to create this marvelous diversity of living things on our planet, and most especially, that plan included homo sapiens, human beings. But after evolution had prepared a sufficiently advanced house, if you can call it that, the human brain, which was necessary for complicated things like spirituality to have a possibility, then God gifted humanity, and this is what Adam and Eve's story is all about, with the knowledge of good and evil, that's the moral law, with free will and with an immortal soul. And if you will, Homo sapiens then became Homo divinus. We humans used our free will to break that moral law, leading to our estrangement from God. For me as a Christian, Jesus Christ is the solution to that estrangement, which otherwise would prevent me from being able to have relationship with God just as I have discovered God's existence. So this is often referred to as theistic evolution, but it's an unfortunate term because I think it turns a lot of people off. It sounds like evolution is driving this. It's the noun after all. And theistic, who knows what that means anyway. So a suggested alternative. What I'm really talking about here is life, bios, the Greek. We're talking Socrates here, so it's okay to use Greek, right? Bios, life, through logos, the word. In the beginning was the word, the first chapter of John. And the word spoke us into being, or simply biologos, if you will, God speaking life into being. In that case, yes, DNA perhaps can be thought of metaphorically as the language of God. There are objections to this synthesis, of course. We may be talking about them in a minute in the Q&A. Didn't evolution take an awfully long time? Well, yeah, for our perspective. Remember, God's outside of time. Might have been a blink of an eye. Isn't evolution a purely random process? Doesn't that take God out of it? Well, not if God preloaded the whole enterprise. Again, being outside of time with full knowledge of the outcome. Or perhaps God inhabits the process in ways that we can't interpret or perceive. The intelligent design movement would say, well, all well and good about common descent, but don't tell me that evolution could produce these marvelous nanomachines that we have inside of our cells or that bacteria have, like the flagellum. Uh, those require some sort of special intervention, and that is the position that intelligent design has taken. It is not a productive pathway because, in fact, many of those so-called irreducibly complex uh, structures like the flagellum are turning out to have multiple intermediate steps that evolution could have well produced. And one does not therefore have to postulate a supernatural intervention. And frankly, this is not only turning out to be bad science, maybe it's not very good theology either, that God had to step in and fix the process that had had so many flaws that it required numerous supernatural interventions to get the whole thing to work. 
and of course, especially from people who have grown up in a faith tradition that has taught them that the interpretation of Genesis must be one of literal 24-hour days. Uh, This seems to conflict with that. Well, is that interpretation required uh, by the words of Genesis 1 and 2? If you haven't recently looked at Genesis 1 and 2, have a look tonight. And you will see that there are two stories of creation, and they don't quite agree. In the first story, the plants appear before humans. In the second story, humans appear before plants. Now, surely that was to indicate to us that we're not to interpret this in an absolutely literal way, or already before you get halfway through Genesis 2, you've got a big problem. My favorite theologian who wrote about this 1,600 years ago when he could hardly be accused of making apology for Darwin uh, was St. Augustine. Augustine was absolutely obsessed, it seems, uh, with the whole issue of how to interpret Genesis and wrote no less than four books about it and summed all of that up in this marvelous paragraph that I wish was read more frequently. In matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision, this is writing about Genesis, we find in Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith we have received. In such cases, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress, sounds like science, in the search for truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. I fear that the tension that has now, especially in America, come to the fore between those who see the truth of evolution based upon science and those who see the truth of scriptures based on the reading of the Bible has very much lost this sense of the way in which God's truth really can't contradict God's truth. And I believe God gave us two books. One was the book of God's word, that's the Bible, and the other was the book of God's works, which is nature. And I think God gave us intelligence and curiosity and expected us to use those to go and learn about the details of God's creation and to celebrate uh, what we discovered as a glimpse of God's mind as an opportunity to worship. And I wrote about that in this book called The Language of God, but others have written about it beautifully as well. And I'm relieved to see that it's not only the atheists who are writing strongly worded books about science and faith, mostly arguing that faith ought to be considered no longer relevant, but some beautiful books are being written by people like my friend Daryl Falk, Coming to Peace with Science. My friend Carl Guyberson writing a book just out this summer called Saving Darwin. All of these scientists who are strong believers. Owen Gingrich, astronomer at Harvard, writing a beautiful book called God's Universe. And recently David Myers at Hope College, a friendly letter to skeptics and atheists, basically trying to point out that the arguments coming from Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett, the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, uh, need not necessarily be embraced on the basis of reason. They are, in fact, violating the usual rules of reason. So here we are, back to those two images. One of the things I've been working on since the book came out is an effort to try to put up answers to the most frequently asked questions that get posed to me in emails and letters over the last two years. And in another couple of months, that will be up on a website with the uh, URL www.biologos.org. And I hope people who are looking for a debate about that will find that site and can engage on it in a way that should be pretty interesting. And now I hope that perhaps some of those questions may be posed by all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Collins. We have uh, dessert and coffee 
You need coffee after a dull talk, right? It'll pick you right back up. It'll pick you right back up. Hang in there. It gets better. No, we are so great. Dr. Collins, we are grateful, very grateful to you. We are very grateful to you for coming here. Thank you. Um, we have about uh, 20 minutes uh, for Q&A. I know some of you have good questions, and I know some of you are are good friends of mine, and I'm not going to let you talk tonight. You have to really have a good question. But we have just a few minutes for some questions. Uh, so anybody, I'm going to walk over to you with the microphone. So anybody uh, who, has a, who has a question, it has to always be in the guy in the back. All right, I'm coming to you. If anybody intercepts me in the meantime, I'd appreciate it. But uh, you'll talk loud? Okay, uh, there was a really important meeting in 1996, just as we were beginning the process of scaling up to sequence the human DNA, where all of the leaders of the laboratories that were going to do the work got together and talked about this issue. And our concern was that this was information that was going to be very hard to make sense out of, and there really wasn't any justification for keeping it out of view for even more than a day. If the goal here was to benefit humankind, and if this seemed to us to be such basic fundamental information that intellectual property applications wouldn't actually turn out to be beneficial, but actually the reverse, that we should just give it away. And that was the decision, and we stuck to it uh, throughout. And I think history, when they look back, will see that as a pretty important moment. It is a view now that has actually spread in the genomics community to all kinds of other data sets uh, where the ethic now is to release your data even before publication so that other people can begin to use it. Is that okay? That was good enough? <laughs> we need the next one to be a multiple choice question in the interest of, uh, <laughs> or true or false. Uh, Dick, you had a question here? You ready? Very simple question. Uh, science got you to God. How did you go from God to Christianity? Huh. That's a great question. The question is, how did I get uh, from science to God to Christianity? So as I mentioned, I was not raised in a home where religion was practiced as a serious activity, so I had a pretty blank slate to write on. Um, I went through, as I've tried to describe, these arguments that led me to accept the idea of a creator God who cared about people, and then I had to figure out what was God like. And I did look at the world's religions, trying to understand what they had to say, and I realized that an awful lot of what they say is similar. There's great similarities uh, in terms of the principles and, and the things that we are all called to do on the basis of these religions, but there are also differences. I will tell you, this came at a time where I was feeling particularly worried about the way things were going, because just as I began to realize that God was a reality, I was also, because of my recognition of the moral law, realizing how far short I fell of what God was calling me to do. And I would try to change that, and I would fail over and over again. And the person of Jesus Christ, different than every other figure I had encountered in the other world religions, who not only claimed to know about God, but to be God, 
and who died on the cross in a substitutionary way became exactly what I felt I had been looking for. And so after resisting this, because this was not the outcome I expected, ultimately I could no longer resist. And at the age of 27, I became a Christian. That's, uh, that about covers it. Thank you. Okay, we've got, uh, we've got another question. I'm coming to you in a moment, but uh, there's a question right here. There's all kinds of questions. They better be good and short. <laughs> They're doing okay. Yeah. Um, one of the most studied genomes is the yeast DNA. And yes. of that, that's sort of one of the most simplistic, in a sense, when you compare it to the human genome. Um, shouldn't scientists actually argue that it would be more interesting to make us more simple, in a sense, so there's less problems that can occur in our DNA? Yeast can survive the worst temperatures out there. It will outsurvive us as a human race. It's kind of almost backwards in my mind. So I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, on the simplicity of the yeast genome compared to human genomes. Well, yeast is a wonderful model, and we've certainly learned a huge amount about biology from studying yeast. But they're not too good at second-order differential equations, and they haven't sequenced their own genome. So I think we still have some reasons uh, to be proud of ourselves. Not that we, sure. not that we know of. <laughs> not that we know of. Right? Maybe the yeast is actually having a meeting just like this, and we're not aware of it. And they're, and they're putting us down. Yeah, we're too complex. Yeah, I'm sure they don't have an Eric Metaxas in the yeast uh, gathering. No, there's no way. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we have a question here. Yeah, my question is, is as, a, as a scientist uh, working on the Human Genome Project, and also as a Christian, how has your uh, study of the idea of uh, evolution affected your um, understanding of the doctrine of original sin? Oh, that's a hard one to answer in a sentence, but it's a great question. So what is the doctrine of original sin? Basically, the idea that all humans have fallen, as described in the Garden of Eden, that we were given the chance uh, to choose between good and evil, and we chose evil, and we've been ever since afflicted by that. Um, certainly, it's one of those doctrines of the church that we can all confirm by personal observation that we are all fallen creatures. Uh, it's not hard to perceive that in yourself or in others. Can you be more specific? Anybody? Okay. <laughs> Maybe your mother, Eric, has not yeah. fallen into yeah, this category. I would, I would like to excuse her if I could. Uh, but certainly, from an evolutionary perspective, it's a little hard uh, to, to merge uh, that particular doctrine with what we know about DNA. And particularly, it's hard to understand what is this moral law all about that we seem to have that other animals don't. And this is where I guess, in response to your question, I don't think a purely naturalistic explanation exists uh, for original sin. I think that gets you into theology. I think that gets you into a territory that science alone can't answer. And yet is a really important question and another reason that motivated me and many other people uh, to move away from a purely naturalistic worldview and try to ask other deeper questions that only really spirituality can address. Okay. Given all that you've presented, what do you believe that God wants? <laughs> I, I hesitate to try to answer that question because that would imply that I know God's mind and I think my understanding of God's mind is this tiny little glimpse from time to time. I believe that God 
wants fellowship with us. It does make sense that all of this creative effort and all these setting of the parameters and this instilling of the moral law as a means of having us appreciate both what good is and how far short of it we are wouldn't make a lot of sense if that was not intended to be a signpost to a good and holy God. And that does seem to me the one answer I can give is that God is in some way calling out to us and hoping for a response. It took me a long time to respond. I'm... Look, look how many questions we have. You need to be more clear in your talk. This is, uh, I don't know what to do about this. This is terrible. We've never had this happen before. Our speakers are usually very clear, and we have just a couple of long-winded questions, and that's and everybody it. Everybody goes on. Uh, so we're not going to get to everybody. So um, I'm just, uh, okay. Um, I think uh, it's the lady's turn. Hi, this sort of relates to what he was asking about original sin, but as a Christian and a scientist, um, how do you explain the issue of death? And what I mean by that is the Bible says that um, death entered the world through sin, but if you have evolution before that, there's lots of death before the sin. Yes. So so scientifically, it's clear uh, from a vast array of evidence, the fossil record, the age of the earth, the study of DNA and many other things uh, that certainly organisms were living and dying before humans appeared on the scene. So does that conflict with Romans 5, uh, which seems to be talking about death entering the world through Adam, or does it conflict with 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22, which seems to have a similar kind of implication? Uh, Looking at those particular verses, I think there is a serious discussion that could be had about whether that is referring to physical death or spiritual death. After all, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told, if you eat from the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. And they ate from the fruit of the tree, and they did not die right then, but they spiritually died because they were kept at that point separate from God. There's certainly nothing in the verses that I think anyone has convinced me of that imply we're talking about death of animals or plants. We're talking about death of humans. And so if you could say, for instance, that in God's view, humans did not arrive on the scene until that moment where free will and conscious uh, decision-making and the moral law arrived, uh, then that may be at the moment uh, where that particular consequence occurred. And then you don't have such a dilemma. I think that argument, when applied to try to say that evolution can't be merged together with Christian theology, doesn't quite go back to the original scriptures and ask what was the meaning of those words. Um, I actually have a question. Yes. Um, When you talk about the flagellum uh, in the cell, is that funny? Uh, We're just not sure where you're going here. I know. That's good. Maybe people will listen. Um, When... um, People talk about intelligent design and the flagellum and irreducible complexity. Some people here know what I'm talking about. But um, the idea that uh, God comes in and says, um, I need to do X or Y or whatever, there's sort of, there is something sort of ham-fisted about that. It looks, it looks strange that he has to say, now, wait a second, stop everything. And he has to kind of come in and, and fix something or invent the cell. or do, He has to do something like that. Yep. And you're coming out on the side that says that that doesn't seem right, that these things can just arise uh, through the process of uh, evolution. Now, the thing is, it seems to me that there needn't be... Make your question short. A, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, 
Definitely. It's tragic. <laughs> sit down. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> who said it's a question? I didn't really say it's a question. Um, so my question is... Uh, why do we feel the need to say this, either this was God intervening or wasn't God intervening? Because if you go and look at uh, what we would call a random processes, how, how thinly can you slice it to where you say God you know, stuck his finger in here or he didn't or he didn't? On, on some level, isn't it beyond us to be able to make that call sure. on any level? Absolutely. I guess the reason I... I'm unhappy uh, with the way in which intelligent design has been so readily embraced by many people in the church is that it does take a very specific view about this issue as if that's just the way it has to be. Namely, that things like the bacterial flagellum or the eye or the clotting cascade uh, in blood could not have de developed by a gradual process of evolution and had to require some supernatural intervention. That's a God of the gaps approach. Right. The gaps right. are being readily filled by advances in science and it basically has put God in an awkward position by our human actions. My God is greater than that. Uh, my God would not have set up a process that required so much of this tweaking along the way to fix something that was kind of imperfect to begin with. Although on some global level, I think what you're saying is that uh, he can still be the God of the gaps if the gaps are infinitesimal. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the sense that God can inhabit the process of evolution without sort of going off somewhere and ignoring it, yes. But to come in and say, okay, God had to invent right. the amino acid sequence right. of the 32 proteins that make up the bacterial flagellum because evolution couldn't do it, uh-uh. And yet on some level you're saying that he did, he just didn't do it in a way that's obvious to us? He preloaded it. Uh, Which isn't it the same thing on some level? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, maybe it is if you let God as God must be outside of time, then the distinction between preloading and inhabiting goes away. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> we have a question. You thought that was tough. We've got a lawyer here. <laughs> oh, boy. My wife says I shouldn't ask the question, but I just can't resist. Oh, go right ahead. Now, you said that there's... <laughs> I'm... No. Doc, I'm going to give you your chance right now. Um, the, you, you spoke about the fact of gravity, and I've always been very interested in this, that if it was off just by a little bit, that there would be 15 different changes, you know, or 15 different parallel universes. Now, or is there, more than that. Or more than that. Is there a possibility that, and, and evolution, right, when you have evolution, it's, things kind of evolve for the better, you know, mm -hmm. ape to human. Now, is it possible that Stephen Colbert could have evolved into metaxis from one universe to another in a, in a better, is there any possibility? That's, it. That's a true or false. I we guess, yeah, quick. we have to decide which is more evolved and which is less evolved, and I don't think we want to go there. <laughs> a quick question. Your thoughts on stem cell research? Oh, well. So in the appendix to this book, The Language of God, I wrote a bit about bioethics, including uh, some discussion about stem cell research. Uh, clearly, this is an area that has been enormously controversial. For me as a scientist, I understand the controversy, although I'm often troubled by the way in which different kinds uh, of science get muddled together without a clear distinction. I believe that 
when the sperm and the egg come together, uh, that is the creation of a human being. And I don't think we should be doing that uh, for research purposes. That doesn't seem like a respectful way to treat the dignity of a human. On the other hand, when we consider there are 400,000 or more of such frozen embryos sitting in freezers that have been produced by in vitro fertilization, something that most people do support, and that the likelihood of all of those ultimately being implanted is extremely low, I think there is an argument to be made. I'm not going to tell you exactly what the answer would be, but I don't think it's an argument that's inappropriate to consider about whether the use of some of those for something that might help somebody with Parkinson's disease or diabetes might actually be more ethical than discarding them. But you know what? I think this issue is evolving itself in a very interesting way because of a new development in the last two years called IPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, this is an amazing scientific development. I think perhaps the most breathtaking thing that's happened in my scientific career, at least in the last four or five years, and that is the ability to take a skin cell and convince it by adding just four genes uh, to go back in time and become what you call pluripotent, capable then of generating all kinds of other cell types, including liver and brain and muscle and heart and all of that. And you can do that from an individual. In fact, there's a paper, my lab just discussed this last week in Journal Club, you can pluck a single human hair and you get enough cells from the root of that hair to be able to do this trick and end up with these stem cells which could become almost any tissue. Now that seems ethically much less challenging because you're not going through anything that you would call an embryo. At least I don't think you should call it an embryo. You'll confuse everybody. And yet this is, as a therapeutic, much more potentially valuable because it is your cells. It's not some transplant that you're going to have from somebody that you're going to reject. This is your cells. And so maybe the good news about all of the, the noise about stem cells is that the way in which the science has evolved uh, now poses the opportunity that both ethically and scientifically the things that we want to do are the things that I think we all can support.